friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. chapter 1, or 21, starting with verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you at once, and you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says, if, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, this is Zechariah, Say to daughter Zion, which is Jerusalem, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's Zechariah 9.9. Push pause for a second before we pick up with this passage. If we were to continue in verse 10 of Zechariah 9, it would say this. I think it's important. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim. Uh, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. We pick this back up in Matthew. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, for Jesus said on them, a very large crowd spread out their coats on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed said, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowd answered, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You may be seated. Who is this? Who is this? Man, this is good news, but it brings up some interesting questions. We, three, we see in this passage kind of three different titles for Jesus. Jesus is a king, is he? Or was Jesus a savior? We see that, Hosanna, God save us. And then we see the crowd saying, no, 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 he's a prophet from the town of Nazareth in Galilee. So the question I have for you today is, what do you think of when you hear the word gospel? If someone were to say to you in a real comfortable setting, you know, a close friend, they would say, hey, you know, what's the gospel to you? It doesn't have to be some polished deal, but what is the gospel to you? And today I want to I think I want to challenge that a little bit, and, I, and I've prayed that I would do it, that this would come across in lots and lots of humility, not to say that anybody has got it wrong, but it might be bigger and better than we thought. So, see, I, w I was trained as a young youth pastor how to share the gospel. Someone sat down with me, and we practiced over and over and over again. Jonathan was one of our interns at, at Crossings, and we had all the interns do the same thing, sit down, practice, share it with us. And I've drawn this out on a lot of different napkins at restaurants. It comes from 
Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then you can take this and make, make this is the bridge illustration, right? So we got over here, the wages, sin, death. We circle those words and go, wages, wages, what, what, are, what are wages? A lot of times the students say, I don't know, what you get for what you do. Yeah, that's, that's a wage. How about sin? Bad stuff. Yeah, do any of that? Yes, sir. Me too. Death. Death. This isn't just talking about death physically. This is talking about death spiritually. Eternal separation from God in a place called hell. And then we go to the other side, but, 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 there's a gift of God and it's eternal life. What's a gift? I don't know. It's something you get for nothing. That's right. Something you get and you did nothing to get it. From who? From God. Who is God to you? I don't know. I don't believe in God. Well, tell me what kind of God you don't believe in because I might not believe in that kind of God either. And then we would just discuss what did they believe about God? And then eternal life, what's that? What's that look like to you? Is it just something that happens after we pass from this life into the next, right? And then you kind of get to the end and they're like, oh, so, so what's it gonna be for you? Eternal conscious torment in a place called hell or would you like the free gift of God? All you have to do is pray the prayer, right? Sound familiar? That's, that's the gospel and I can tell you, I, I got pretty decent at it. I could get about almost any teenager to take heaven over hell. <laughs> But is that the gospel? Certainly not anything less. But is it more? This is a question for today. Uh, startling statistic. It's kind of scary for parents, and we have a lot of them. It's good, and it's not so good. 90% of kids who grow up in an evangelical home at some point will pray the prayer to receive Jesus in their heart. Amen? It's good stuff. 90%, if they grow up in a Christian home, an evangelical home, 90% of them will pray the prayer at some point to receive Jesus. That's the good news. Bad news, of that 90%, 22% will still be following Jesus at the age of 35. So what's wrong? It's not a simple answer, but it's at least in part the incomplete gospel that we are preaching as parents, as teachers. See, the gospel that many of us grew up with was consumed with making decisions. And therefore, many of us have mistakenly equated the gospel with salvation. And, un and unintentionally, that kind of makes us salvationists, but does it make us Christian? See, we hear the gospel. We hear the word gospel, and our instinct is just naturally, at least this is my assumption. If this is not you, you can go on your phone, do whatever. But for those of us who naturally go to personal salvation, I think this could be important for all of us. See, a businessman who was helping Bill Bright, Campus Crusade, and, and many others in the 60s and 70s better share the gospel. He said, you know what we find in sales is that if you start with something good, you sell more. So, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life was birthed. Now, I'm not cracking. 
Not being critical. God does love you. He does have a, a wonderful plan for your life. It's just, that's not where the gospel message starts with you and your life. Each generation must pause to consider, has the culture that we live in, and ours in particular, this individualistic, independent, sometimes narcissistic culture, has it reshaped or maybe even um, more innocently highlighted certain aspects of the gospel that fit our liking a little bit better? So what I want to tell you is that the gospel story is first the story about King Jesus, not how to be happy when you die. It's a redeeming story, but it doesn't start with us. It starts with Jesus. The gospel is first and foremost not about being saved, right? The gospel is the first four books we see in the first four books of the Bible. That's why they call it the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John, the gospel according to Mark. The question that it, it, the gospel, presents is not why should God let you into his heaven, but who is Jesus? That's what the crowd wanted to know that day, right? That first Palm Sunday, who is this? It's the question of the gospel. Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And when we start with his story, we see that Jesus does more than save people. You see, in the bridge illustration, I'm tempted to use Jesus as an agent to get my salvation, right? In this, Jesus is a means to an end. But in the gospel, Jesus is the subject, grammar students, not the means. And if we aren't careful, we simply make the gospel a, a, a thing that we can get something out of. In a lot of ways, I think this salvation gospel has led to the deconstruction of the church. Deconstruction of worship. How so? See, if it's individualistic, once I get me and my relationship with God kind of sorted out, it's pretty much done for me. And I can go to church, that's fine, but it's not necessary because I've kind of got what I want, which was heaven, not eternal conscious torment. The real gospel leads kingdom people to the body of Christ that is the kingdom of God. Where there is a king, there must be a kingdom of many. There's no gospel in the New Testament that leads people into an individual faith or a private faith. There's none. The gospel of Jesus in the New Testament leads to this communal faith. So if our faith doesn't lead us back to the church, Big C Church, of which this is a part of, lead us back to worship of the king, then our gospel is simply incomplete. So, what does the gospel mean? What is the gospel from cover to cover? In the Old Testament, we see from the first pages all the way through the prophets in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, 2 Samuel, Psalms, all of those and more point to the fact that it appears that this, there's going to be this human king who's also divine. It didn't make a lot of sense to the writers, but they wrote it down. 
This is what it looks like. It's going to be a human king, and he's going to be divine. This is just one of the many passages, right? And we read this a bunch at Christmas time. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He's got a government? Yeah, he does. He, he will reign on David's throne, important peace. And over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time, what time? The time the child was born. Until when? Until when? Forever. From the moment the king is born through forever. And the gospel writers got this, right? Matthew, Luke, start with Jesus' genealogy. John, in the beginning, was the word, and the word was flesh made his dwelling among us. So we see in the birth of Jesus, we've got a king. I don't know if you've ever seen this. This is from the Son of God, the movie, The Son of God. And I think it just kind of gets our mind right, hopefully, for the rest of the, uh, the message about his kingship. Appropriate response is to bow. Mark doesn't start his uh, gospel with the genealogy or the birth of Jesus. He starts it with this sentence, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. It's the gospel in a sentence. See, the title Christ in the New Testament is the word for long-awaited anointed king of Israel. They were all expecting this. And the outsiders were the first ones to get it, right? The wise men, the magi, they, they weren't insiders from Israel. They were from long off. But God planted something in their heart to remind us all that he is king. 
In the Old Testament, it's the word Messiah, Hebrew word. In the New Testament, it's the word Christ in the Greek. Both mean the same thing. Both relate back to uh, an oil, that, a holy oil that was used to anoint kings. So when you see the word Messiah, as you're reading, I try to do it for the last couple of weeks, every time you see the word Christ, every time you see in the Old Testament the word Messiah, New Testament as well, you just replace it in your mind with king. I'll try to do that for us today. So according to the scriptures, and I hope we see this for, for the next little bit, Jesus died for my sins so that I can go to heaven is not the basic message of the gospel. Jesus is king is the Bible's gospel. We see this in Jesus himself. Just a few verses later in Mark, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God has drawn near. It's here, right now, in front of you. Repent and believe this gospel. Okay, so wait a minute. Think about that. We've all probably read or heard that. So you're telling me that Jesus preached the gospel before the cross and the resurrection. He did. He did. Luke 4.43, but he said, that's Jesus, I must proclaim the good news. That word is gospel. I must proclaim gospel of the kingdom to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. One of the reasons why Jesus was sent is to share the gospel that his kingdom has begun. In the passage that we read a little bit earlier, it said that when Jesus came in, there was a very large crowd. Normally, it, it was much bigger because of Passover, but it was actually three times greater than the rest of the Passovers, than the previous Passovers. Why? Because there was this stirring, not just in the city, but outside the city. Right? He had raised Lazarus from the dead. That's probably going to get some people's attention. And as they are riding in, or as they're walking into Jerusalem, in Matthew chapter 20, just right before this, two, two blind guys yell out at him, and they're screaming, and they're saying, Son of David, Lord, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples are trying to shush him. And Jesus lets him talk. What, what, what is it? Son of David. Have mercy on me. Doesn't maybe mean much to us, but what he's saying is long-awaited Messiah. We haven't heard anything for 400 years. But you, the one we've heard about, the one that, that our ancestors told us about that would come in, you, he's right there. Did you see that? He's right there. That's him, son of David. And for the first time, Jesus doesn't shush them. Every other human, every other demon who kind of calls out his identity, he's like, no, 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 not yet, not yet. But at this point, he lets it go. Because he, know he knows the time has come that his identity was going to be revealed. Comes riding in on a donkey, an animal of peace, the steed of a servant. Think about that. From the other side of town, in came Pilate, and he's riding on his big white horse, right? Jesus is riding in. And it seems to, to suggest that he's riding into to battle. Other passages seem to suggest that. Can you imagine riding a donkey into battle? You'd be better off on foot. 
If you're a king riding a donkey into battle, you are set up for slaughter. See, the gospel writers and the, prophet, the, the, the uh, apostles and the disciples, they got this and they were not confused about the gospel. And if we just look in the book of Acts, this is not exhaustive, but I hope it's enough for you to go, okay, there's something here. Peter, the very first sermon that Peter, that's ever given in the New Testament, given by, uh, well, maybe it's not the first, I guess Jesus gave some sermons. The first sermon post resurrection was given uh, by Peter, and he says this, therefore let all of Israel be, sure, be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What's Messiah mean? King. Both Lord and King. Acts 5, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news. What's that word? Gospel. Never stop proclaiming the gospel that Jesus is the king. Acts 8, 4 and 5. Now those who were scattered went about gospeling the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the everyone. Come on, let's a little more mustard up here. Yet Saul baffled the Jews living in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the king. Yeah, I picture Palm Sunday. Hosanna, Hosanna. Right? Come on, this Palm Sunday. He's the what? Good Lord, help us. All right. Acts 9.22, yet Saul baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the king. He's the king. Acts 17.2-3, Paul reasoned with them from the scripture, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the king. to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this is the king. this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you. 18.5, Paul was preoccupied preaching, testifying to the G Jews that Jesus is a, don't get bored, king. Finally, by the scripture, Apollo showed that Christ, the, to be Jesus. I read a book in preparation for this. It's a skinny book. Put it on your Amazon list. It's called The Gospel Precisely, written by Adam Bates. Literally, you can read it in a half hour, hour. You'd be better off to read it in three months, a few sentences at a time. It is phenomenal. You're hearing a lot of what he's saying here, but this is how he summarizes the gospel. The gospel is this. Jesus is the saving king. He preexisted with God the Father. In accordance with God's promises, Jesus became human in the line of David, died for our sins, was buried, was resurrected, and on the third day was seen, was installed as king at God's right hand, sent the Holy Spirit, and will return to rule. Friends, this is the gospel. Maybe worth taking a picture if you're not going to buy the book. Promise me you'll at least take a picture of this. This is it. This is the gospel. You might, that's too long to remember. No, it's not. You remember the lyrics to all the Beyonce songs. You can remember this, right? So, if this is true, if this is true, and I believe it is, what does Jesus' kingship mean in our lives? 
What does it mean in our families? What does it mean in our church community? This, this question is paramount. This is not some secondary issue to your personal salvation. See, when Jesus says in John 18, 36, he says, my kingdom is not from this world. What he's saying is that its source, its divine source is not from this world. He's not talking about some final destination in the sky. He's talking about where his reign and rule comes from. It's the church's main assignment then to further this gospel announcement. See, I think part of our issue goes back to that term Christ because we've reduced it to just a name, right? It's just another way of saying Jesus. And you see that, you hear that, you listen to people and they're like, yeah, they're just kind of, they, they, they're saying his name, right? It, it, it's kind of like me saying Pastor John, Jonathan, Pastor Jonathan, right? Th th those two words are not synonymous, right? One is a title, one is his name and who he is, and, and he's more than just that title, right? I mean, they, 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 for us to put Jesus and Christ and make them equivalent terms is a mistake, because the term Christ is like saying his majesty. See, Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. And, and certainly back in that time, if you did not get the cornerstone of a house set exactly perfect, precise, careful, the whole house would be off balance. And I would suggest, I'm not saying yours personally, but I would say kind of universally, in American Christianity, I feel like the cornerstone has gotten some things off balance. Paul, in what is probably the most clear and concise passage of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, says this. He says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. Not by another one, by this one. If you hold firmly to the word I preach. I don't want to freak anybody out, any Baptist or anybody on that line. We can talk about it later. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So if you chase another gospel... Maybe just the salvation gospel and narrow it, shrink it down to that's it. It's possible that we could believe in vain. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of his brothers and sisters at the same time, most of who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to me also to one as abnormally born. This is Paul's gospel. And forgiveness, salvation, humongous piece of the gospel. But it becomes more important, I almost said more better, more important, it becomes better when you understand that it's at the king's hand that this took place, the king's hands that it took place. Notice that Paul doesn't even say his name, just uses his title. It's the king, the king had to do this. 
In Romans 1, 2, not to belabor the point, just a couple more on Paul. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets. In the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in the power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection separates us. It's the most important thing. We're going to celebrate it so well next week. It proves Jesus' gospel was true. He is the king. Second Timothy, Paul sometimes gets lazy. He's like, oh, I'm going to shorten the guy. I'll shorten it for you this time. Remember G King Jesus, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. In case that other thing Adam Bates tells you a long time from now, in case that's hard to remember, how about this one? Can you handle this? King Jesus, raised from the dead, descended from the line of David, that's my gospel. So I think we would just be wise to adopt the apostles, Paul's gospel, because I figure they know what they're talking about. So we see through, all throughout Scripture in the New Testament how central and important the cross is. And the gospel reaches its climactic energy with the rule of Christ the King. I don't have time. There, I, I literally looked up, seated at the right hand of the Father, and the first thing that pops up on Google, you can test me, uh, first thing that popped up on Google was a hundred verses about s s Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. I'm like, that's a little too many for, for, for me. But it's all throughout Scripture that, that not only did he do all these other things, he's seated right now, which means he's king reigning and ruling in this very moment. So what Adam uh, Bates does later in the book is he puts it in a more linear thing, which is, it has been easier for me to remember. So, so for me, it's like three, four, three. I'll show you what I mean here. Okay? So here are the 10 points of the gospel. You don't have, hey, again, you can take a picture. You don't have to write them down. You don't necessarily have to memorize them, but this is critical, right? The first three, I can kind of keep in my mind, he preexisted with God. He preexisted with God. He was sent by the Father. He took on human flesh in fulfillment to his promises to David in his line of David. Those are the first three. I kind of sectioned those off. Then the next four, he, he, he took on, or he died according to the scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the th third day according to the scripture. He appeared to many witnesses. Those are kind of the four that, that we think of as the gospel. And then the next three that are really important is he, he is enthroned in, at the right hand of the Father as the ruling Christ right now. And that he sent us his Holy Spirit. Why? He sent it to his people to affect his rule. We have an assignment in this, in the gospel. We have an assignment in the gospel. And it's not just to tell people the gospel. We are to live out the gospel. We are to fulfill the gospel by affecting the way we rule with him. And then finally, 10, he will come again as the final judge. And then he will rule perfectly. So the question is, so what, right? So what? Why make such a big deal about this? Because we've always said around here, what you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. I was talking to Jonathan on Monday, waiting for the boys to get out of basketball practice. We're talking through this, and he said something that I'll never forget. Didn't, didn't, I don't even think I wrote it down because I didn't need to. He says, if we win them with a reductionist gospel, we get a reduced Christianity. 
we win them with a reductionist gospel, incomplete, we get a reduced Christianity where people just raise a hand, walk an aisle, come and kneel, and that's about it. They're not reigning and ruling. They're not participating in the kingdom of God. Why? Because we didn't tell them they had to. We said all you have to do, and they took us up on it. Sometimes we ask the wrong questions. N.T. Wright writes these words. Our questions have been wrongly put because they haven't been about the kingdom. They haven't been about God's sovereign saving rule coming on earth as in heaven. Instead, our questions have been about salvation that rescues people from the world instead of for the world. That's worth writing down. Going to heaven has been the object ever since the Middle Ages, at least, in the Western church. Sin is what stops us from getting there, so the cross must deal with sin, so that we can leave this world and go to the much better one in the sky or in eternity or wherever. But this is simply untrue to the story the Gospels are telling, which again explains why we've all misread these wonderful texts. Whatever the cross achieves must be articulated if we are to take the four Gospels seriously within the context of the kingdom bringing victory. Amen? See, God created, back to the first page of the Bible, God created humans in his own image for a purpose to reflect him and to rule the earth, to rule creation with him. That is our purpose, but it's no longer achievable due to sin, right? So, so what if God's, God's aim really was to, to save sinners and to rescue them for a purpose, not from something? Back to the first pages. What's the fundamental human sin? What's the fundamental human sin? It's to make our own moral choices, isn't it? Apart from God's directives. Simply put, we don't want to be told what to do from the garden on. St. Augustine is one of the most profound theological writers. He, he's, he's writing, kind of reflecting back to his rebellious teens, and he was a rebellious one, right? And, and he's remembering a time when he broke into a pear orchard to steal pears. And as he's reflecting on this, he's like, why, 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 do I, why did I do that when A, I wasn't hungry, and B, I don't like pears? <laughs> and he realized that it was C, it was C. Somebody told him he couldn't. He says, I wouldn't have stolen the pears if it wasn't forbidden. And he realized in that moment something deep in his heart and therefore deep in all of our hearts that we want to say, you can't tell me what to do. Nobody can I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And when Jesus comes near, we want to reject this all or nothing decision. And you and I have been or will be probably tempted to say, well, I don't despise and, and I don't reject him. I just haven't surrendered my whole life to him as the king. And, and what, what Jesus would say is, what intellectual integrity would say, what Palm Sunday would say is that's not an option. It's not an option. 
Reynolds Price, he wrote an essay uh, to kind of the prologue of John, and, and he says this, he says, if we take the gospel writer seriously, that's John, if we're to take John seriously, we must finally ask the question, he, John, thrust so flagrant, flagrantly towards us, does he, does John bring us a life-transforming truth, or is this one gifted lunatic's tale of another lunatic wilder than he? We have to make a decision. Jesus says you can despise me as a lunatic or you can throw it all off and serve me completely. But there's nothing in the middle. None of us with that intellectual integrity can find a middle ground with Jesus. Palm Sunday won't allow it. Jesus says, I will not allow it. Crown me or kill me. There's nothing else. And he comes into our hearts the same way. If you come to him and say, man, I would like some help. I would like some inspiration. Jesus, I, I would like for you to be my helper, my friend, my consultant. You know what King Jesus will say? He said, man, I can be so much more than that. I can be your shepherd. I can be your uh, guide. I can be your helper. I can be your savior. But I will not and cannot until I'm your king. And if we're asking Jesus, if we're asking for Jesus' help without enjoying him and obeying him, we really just want magic, right? Abracadabra, alakazam, poof. Jesus is not a magical power. Jesus has kingly power. And we access it through submission. Palm Sunday, he says, unless I am king, you reject me. I am not savior until I am king. I am not helper until I am king. I am not brother until I am king. I am not transformer until I am king. But the natural human heart wants to reject is wired to reject the king. See, the, the Trinitarian God up in heaven, they, they never planned, they never expected, they never wanted a king for Israel. Did you know that? 1 Samuel 8, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Churches are full. America is full. The Bible is full of people who are upset because they are owned. That someone has rights over them. And rebellion is just the basic impulse of every human heart. George MacDonald, who was a tremendous influence on C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, he says this. He says, one central conviction of hell, one thing that everyone there has in common, I am my own. Because all that are there in hell, wherever that is, there or still living today, living in hell, are there because this I am my own creates hell in our lives and in our relationships. The crowd on Palm Sunday was, was correct by saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us. 
save us. They thought it was to save them from Rome. The king came to save them from themselves. What's wrong with the world? Why do we still have things like Nashville happening today? All the way, all the way down to why do we have anxiety this morning? See, what happened was on Monday, a civilian took the place of a king. Said, I'll do things my way. No one will tell me what to do. Why are you anxious today? Because you know how your life ought to go. And he's just not keep, keeping up with your kingship. You've taken the place of the king. It's nothing new. Sometimes it doesn't always seem like it, but did you realize that 95% of Americans in a recent study still believe in God? 95%. People are not hostile to the concept of God, just the biblical God. The one who says, no other gods before me. No idols. Don't take something that's not yours. Don't sleep with somebody who's not your spouse. Turn the other cheek. That's the God that we want to reject. And we, like King Herod in musical Jesus Christ Superstar, we say, get out, you king. Get out of my heart. But it's only under Jesus' kingship that we are finally free to cast off our misguided self-rule. It's from Jesus that we learn to reject inappropriate desires, handle wealth, forgive our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, turn the other cheek, practice open-handed generosity, take care of the poor, do unto others. See, the Sermon on the Mount is impossible but for under the kingship of Jesus. This gospel, this gospel isn't just good for you. And it's not just for me, good for me. This gospel changes everything. It's good for Christians, it's good for non-Christians. It's good for planets and plants. It's good for animals and social systems. The kingdom of God is where the king, King Jesus, is manifested. And I don't have time to talk about it now, but his kingship is especially operative when the Holy Spirit is present. And when it's not, self-rule is. So, wrapping up. The degraded image of God within humanity, it had to be reset, it had to be refreshed, and Jesus' incarnation, death for our sins, resurrection, enthronement, spirit-sending, and final rule are the gospel. The glorious king has broken sin's tyranny, allowing us to be his true disciples who bear his glory to one another and to his creation. So the gospel, final aim, it's not heaven, but loyal obedience to the king, everlasting life. 
Heaven and eternal life, they're different. I like how Adam Bates says, he says, in the end, we are on stronger biblical ground to believe that we won't go up to heaven. We are waiting on the new heaven and earth and the new heaven and the new earth to come down on earth fully. We get to participate in that. And just like sin can be past, present, and future, right? We're set free from the power of sin. We're set free, or the penalty of sin. We're set free from the power of sin. That's present tense. And then one day we'll be set free from its presence, right? So it's kind of got three tenses. So does the kingdom. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming through us. And the kingdom will come more perfectly and fully. And we look forward to that day. But until then, until then, we are the king's ambassadors, we're the king's ambassadors. And just like an ambassador to France, they may live there and work there. Their primary allegiance is to the United States. We are ambassadors to the king. And our primary allegiance is to his kingdom. Closing with Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? That Jesus Christ is King. Every knee will bow. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, sometimes we ask you to do this. I don't, I, every time Jonathan's asked us to do awkward things, it's that rebellious heart. I don't want to do it. And now I'm going to ask you to do it. If you can, you're not in a dress, your knee, you didn't just have knee surgery. <laughs> if you could get on your knees for a moment. This is just practice. Because this is a posture that you will take at some point. At some point, you're going to bow to King Jesus. Some of you have already done it. Some of you are wrestling with the Holy Spirit right now as to, hmm, is that really... Some of you may be wrestling, and all of, but all of us are going to do it at some point in the future. And so, with just close your eyes. Let me ask you a few questions. Where does your ultimate allegiance lie? Your ultimate allegiance. Be truthful. Is it I am the master of my own fate? I am the captain of my soul, or is it really King Jesus? Have you truly bowed in submission to the king or have you simply settled for forgiveness? If you haven't ever, you could now. You're in position. And I promise you next week it would make for the greatest Easter you've ever had. 
But we started with this and we ended with this. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? And if he's king, do you submit? Always forgive. Always tell the truth. Never return evil with evil, but only with good. Never envy, never commit adultery. None of us us are going to be perfect at this, obviously, but there is a big difference between somebody who has made Jesus king and someone who's just made him their consultant. Are you withholding forgiveness? Some of you are mad, you're bitter, and you just won't forgive. You know you should. You know you need to. You know the king demands it. Do you trust him? Or will you continue to reject him and say, you know what, it's just not not practical. You don't know what they did. You can't tell me what to do. That's just about forgiveness. What about other areas of your life? Where else might the Holy Spirit be talking to you around about right now on where you need to submit? Call uncle. I surrender. It's all about you, Jesus. I know you say your yoke is easy, but it doesn't seem easy. And he says, give me a chance. Give me a chance. I'll go with you. That's the great thing about a yoke. You never have to go somewhere with, by yourself. You always get to travel with him. I was talking with Chase on Friday. something in the Garden of Gethsemane that we all get to tap into. All throughout humanity, all throughout history, it was not thy will, but mine be done, right? And in the garden, Jesus broke the curse and said, not my will, but thine be done. Would you be willing to say that today? Spirit, would you seal this message? We're bowed because you deserve it. You are king.